Hello and welcome to the Inerrant Word Podcast. Today I talk with Dr. Murray Vosser. Dr. Vosser is an assistant professor of New Testament at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Before coming to WBS, he held adjunct faculty positions at several institutions, including Biola University, Asbury Theological Seminary, and Indiana Wesleyan University. He received his MA in New Testament from Talbot School of Theology and his PhD in Biblical Studies from Asbury. Before attending seminary, Dr. Vosser worked as a mechanical engineer in the space industry. He is an active member of the Society of Biblical Literature and the Evangelical Theological Society. Dr. Vosser currently lives in Madison, Mississippi with his wife and their three boys. Today we complete the third part of a three-part discussion on the doctrine of inerrancy from a Wesleyan-Arminian perspective. I encourage you to go back and listen to part one with Dr. Bill Urey and part two with Dr. Vic Reisner, if you have not already. Now let's tune into today's conversation with Dr. Vosser. Well, Dr. Vosser, thank you so much for joining me on the Inerrant Word podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Clay. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Well, thank you. Um, Could we start with just maybe a brief uh, testimony? I know a little bit about your background um, just from you being on a couple different podcasts, um, but um, for my audience, uh, w- would you like to kind of talk about your background and um, your testimony a little bit? Sure. Um, so, so I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home with parents who loved the Lord and who taught me uh, about Jesus, who, who t- preached the gospel to me from uh, my very earliest days. So I have a, uh, uh, my, one of my earliest memories, if not my earliest memory, is when I was three years old, um, going into a, a little cupboard in our house and, and saying uh, the sinner's prayer. Um, and, you know, I don't know how much I understood at, at that age, but um, I, uh, there, I I can say there's never a point in my life that I can remember not knowing and believing uh, that Jesus loved me and that he died for my sins. Um, so it's just a wonderful blessing to be again to be raised in a christian home with parents who so faithfully um taught me about jesus and uh as i'm a, i'm a parent now i have uh, my, my third child was just born and so i i often these days think uh, about my parents and about how grateful i am for um the legacy their legacy of faith and uh how they uh all that they poured into us as children but um I, you know, I, I would say my testimony um, isn't really characterized by any dramatic uh, changes or, uh, you know, crises or events. It's been uh, fairly steady, uh, uh, just, learn, uh, you know, year by year uh, following Jesus and uh, growing in my love for him and my uh, knowledge of him. And I, I would say during high school, I, so I, earlier in my life, I went to uh private schools or was homeschooled. And it was not until high school that I went into the public school system. And that was a time when I was, um, you know, encountered the world more, you know, and saw that there were uh, other ways that people were living that weren't in in line with um, following Jesus. And I I look back to that at a time when I really more, uh, was more solidified in my mind that, um, yes, this is a conscious choice that I'm making to follow Jesus and I'm going down this path and I'm not going down these other paths that are available. 
Um, so yeah, the, I, then I went on to a Christian school. I studied uh, mechanical engineering, uh, worked as an engineer for a bit. Um, but then through ministry in my local church, I sensed God calling me to uh, completely leave that that field and, um, and, and go to seminary. So I went to Talbot School of Theology in Southern California, studied New Testament there. I uh, felt God uh, leading me into theological education. I had the opportunity to, to teach some classes uh, at Biola, the university um, there that uh, Talbot is with. And that really confirmed a calling to go into education. So I went from there to Asbury Theological Seminary, where I got uh, my a doctorate in biblical studies. And then just uh, a few months ago, this summer, I came on full-time at Wesley Biblical Seminary, and I've really enjoyed my, my time teaching with Wesley. Well, that's awesome. Uh, and congratulations on your the birth of your third child. That's a wonderful news. Thank you. His name is Judah. Oh, nice. Okay. Very good name. Uh, I actually have a yeah. friend who uh, is naming his child that as well. So uh, yeah, it's just a good name, good yes. strong name. You didn't talk about this a um, as much, but I wanted to pinpoint a little bit on why uh, or when you first started to trust the Bible. Yeah, well, it, again, it goes back to um, my parents. I they raised uh, me um, to to love the Lord and to love uh, the Scriptures. Uh, they taught me how to study the Scriptures. I you know from very early age they. Um, showed me how to do serious study of the Bible and uh, encouraged me to memorize uh, the Bible. And so, yeah, I definitely would uh, uh, say that from a very early age, uh, I was taught to trust the Bible. Great. And then could you also talk about, I know um, from previous podcasts I've listened to, you came from a more Baptist evangelical background. Um, could you talk That's about right. your journey into Wesleyan evangelicalism? And sure. Yeah. So I, oh, also, sorry, go ahead. Blake. You're fine. Um, also, if you could just kind of break down what Wesleyan evangelicalism is as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, so I um, grew up in, in Baptist churches, as you said, very conservative Baptist churches. And, uh, you know, I would, I, I'm, I'm a very ecumenical person and I would, uh, you know, emphasize the continuity um, between the um, Baptist traditions that I was raised in and the Wesleyan um, uh, tradition that I'm in now, certainly a shared love for the word of God, a love for the Bible. Um, I, I did, however, uh, growing up, notice a, a couple of things that um, I uh, did not uh, perhaps agree with in that tradition. Uh, one of those things was Calvinism. Uh, so I uh, would encounter, uh, you know, the uh, five point Calvinism that though that wasn't as strong in the uh, churches I grew up in. Um, I, when I, I went to um, college at a, a Baptist uh, uh, college and encountered that some more. I um, mean that I, I just didn't feel lined up with uh, how I understood the scriptures. And an, another issue um, that I felt uh, from a very early age was lacking in the traditions that I was uh, raised in was an emphasis on sanctification. And yeah, I, I, I talk about it this way, um, you know, so often in the traditions I was raised in, uh, there would be a focus on just, you know, your, your, uh, the, the gospel message is that you're a sinner and that, um, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you can be forgiven of your sins. And uh, so, you know, if the, say the gospel tracts that we would hand out would just have that message about 
you're a sinner and you can be forgiven if you believe in Jesus. And of course, that's very important. But um, it, I, I felt that there was a lack of emphasis on um, the full transformation that's available uh, through Jesus and uh, that, you know, it's not just about being forgiven, but it's also about being conformed into the image of Jesus and having um, uh, not just having forgiveness from sin, but having victory over sin. And so, uh, of course, it's not that uh, the um, uh, th those in the tradition that I was raised in denied sanctification, uh, but it just didn't have the same uh, emphasis that it has in the Wesleyan tradition. So as I, um, uh, you know, progressed in my theological education, I just really found myself at home in the Wesleyan tradition. I, I did both the, um, the uh, rejection of Calvinism and also the, um, more, the greater emphasis on sanctification. Um, I, I really resonated with that. And so, uh, yes, in, in brief, that's, uh, I, I, I say that I really, it really felt like coming home when I encountered the Wesleyan tradition. Well, it's great to hear uh, a lot of your testimony. So thank you for that background. Um, now, in terms of our topic today, we're going to be talking about inerrancy, of course. Um, what has helped you maintain your belief in inerrancy over the years? How have you struggled with that issue? Sure, that's a great question. I, I feel like a lot of folks who go down a path similar to the path I've gone down uh, do lose their uh, belief in inerrancy. So uh, as I mentioned, I started out in very, um, very conservative, uh, I would say fundamentalist um, churches, and I wouldn't, I'm not using fundamentalist as a pejorative there, they would claim that term, they would, you know, proudly claim that term. Um, and so um, I've, of course, uh, gone uh, through a, quite a bit of education in the Bible, and I, I feel like many people who go down that path where they begin in a fundamentalist church, and then as they get more um, education in, in theology, um, they oftentimes will find that they discard um, the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, but I that has not been my story. Uh, as I have gone deeper in my education, I've uh, I would just say that I found myself even more convinced that inerrancy is um, the a good expression of the uh, proper view of Scripture, the proper doctrine of Scripture. As far as the things that have led me to that conclusion, I would say um, two things uh, stand out. First of all, uh, just a growing awareness that this is indeed the traditional view of Scripture that the church has held. Um, you'll often hear people say things along the lines um, of, you know, inerrancy is an invention of modern fundamentalists, um, but it's really not the case. It's the inerrancy is the view that the church has held um, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, it is, I think, correctly described as the traditional view of scripture. Um, so that's one element. An another element is uh, I, I have... Um, grown in an understanding of the nuance that's involved in the doctrine. Um, so often when people reject inerrancy, um, what they are attacking is a straw man. It's it's a sort of uh, rigid, um, in some cases almost ridiculous doctrine, which um, uh, is easy to dismiss. But again, as I've uh, looked at this more and studied this more, I've found uh, a number of inerrantists who have been able to articulate a very robust um, version of the doctrine. And so those things that I'd say the two things that have um, 
uh, caused me to uh, not only, I would say not only maintain my belief in inerrancy, but even uh, perhaps even strengthen my my belief in inerrancy. Very good. Um, and I know one of the things that people often say, uh, critics um, in particular say that inerrancy is like uh, dictation. Um, I wanted to jump to this question. Uh, what exactly is dictation? Um, and how does it differ from verbal plenary inspiration, which would be the uh, orthodox rendering of inerrancy? Yeah, well, great question. So dictation, uh, of course, in if you think in just human relationships, a dictation would occur when, say, someone dictates a letter to a secretary. They just speak out what the secretary needs to write down. And um, this is suggested as a mode uh, of inspiration uh, so that, you know, the writers of scripture were just writing down um, what God spoke to them, just passively copying down what they heard from God. Um, now, again, I, as I mentioned before, people who uh, dismiss inerrancy are often attacking a straw man. And I think this is a classic example of, of attacking a straw man. If you um, look through something like the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Um, it is um, clear that uh, what is being affirmed is not um, this uh, idea of dictation where the writers of Scripture simply passively copied down what they heard God say to them. Um, the uh, Chicago Statement explicitly affirms that um, the Scriptures are a human production um, and, and that the um, uh, personalities of the authors are uh, preserved. It's, it's not that inspiration overrides their personalities. Now, that, all that to say, there are examples of dictation in the Bible. Um, for example, the, the prophets, maybe the word of the Lord comes to a prophet and says, you know, tell, you know, you, you need to give this message, this specific message. Um, but uh, th that's, I think, um, it, it would be a big mistake to think that all of Scripture um, came to the writers of Scripture in the exact same uh, mode that the uh, uh, the of uh, a prophet receiving the you know precise words that um, the Lord is telling him to proclaim. So you might think, for example, of Luke as he's writing his gospel. He says at the very beginning um, that uh, you know he's he's received these uh, traditions about Jesus from eyewitnesses. So we get a picture of him you know gathering sources. He says he arranges. He's arranged. Um, the narrative. So these these are um, the, uh, this uh, are reference. These are references to you know, the human process of producing a document, um, and uh, I would say that inerrancy is fully compatible with uh, an affirmation that um, the uh, text of Scripture is a, a human production as well as a divine production. Well, thank you for that distinction. I think that really helps me and the audience to really distinguish the two and. Um, helps us to understand why that's a, a straw straw man that dictation is equivalent to um, inerrancy. Um, now, what are you, you mentioned the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy? Could you talk about your thoughts on the Chicago Statement? Sure. So the Chicago Statement is um, an important statement of the doctrine of inerrancy, um, and it is. Uh, why, you know, it's a conservative statement of the doctrine that's widely accepted by um, conservative uh, defenders of the doctrine of inerrancy. And um, as far as my thoughts on it, I, I 
enthusiastically affirm it. I don't uh, have any problem with uh, the way that the, the um, Chicago statement uh, presents the doctrine of inerrancy. On the contrary, I, I find it to be a very nuanced and careful articulation of the doctrine. Um, so, we, you know, if you want to talk more specifically about, um, uh, you know, portions of that, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But just in general, I would say that I, um, I enthusiastically support it, and I, I think it is a well-articulated statement. Well, that's great. Um, yeah, the Chicago statement is something that uh, I put on my blog, and uh, I encourage listeners to to go and read it because it's something that is uh very good does it do a very good job at uh explaining the doctrine of inerrancy in a very like you said nuanced way um that isn't um so um hard to understand or it's it's pretty uh pretty well reasoned and uh easy to understand for the layperson um i wouldn't say it's it was written by scholars but not uh written in in such a way that's uh out of the grasp and uh, uses huge words for people, lay people to not understand at all. So, yeah, I I agree, Clay. I think it is um, written in a way that's uh, clear and easy to understand. And I would all your readers or your listeners are um, probably aware of this, but I just uh, would emphasize here that the Chicago statement um, contains these uh, affirmations and denials, which are sort of the core of the statement. But then at the end, it also contains this exposition. Um, and that I found the exposition very helpful. Um, so if uh, for those who are interested in exploring the Chicago statement more, I'd uh, encourage them to, to read that exposition at the end of the statement. Yeah. And it's uh, the great thing about the Chicago statement is that it was affirmed, signed by uh scholars from various traditions including the wesleyan tradition from uh which you come from and uh that's actually part of my background i know we didn't talk about that before but um i come from a missionary church background uh actually work at bethel university um in indiana uh so oh great yeah so there's a a wesleyan connection there but i i do attend a a non-denominational church uh now and uh but uh like i said it's I've been a, a part of my heritage and uh it's something I have a vested interest in knowing more about is just how um particularly how the doctrine of inerrancy has not been embraced by Wesleyans as much as Calvinists have embraced it. Um now on that note, uh you wrote a series of blog posts uh responding to Dr. David Watson. Um could you talk about um one of the things is uh, how John Wesley uh, affirmed the traditional view of scripture. Um, could you talk about how you uh, prove that he does, in fact, affirm the traditional view of scripture? Because this is a disputed uh, fact. Yes. Well, great, great question. Um, you're certainly right that in Wesleyan circles, uh, very often um, the doctrine of inerrancy is rejected. Um, I I recently read a collection of essays um, entitled uh, Wesley, Wesleyans and Reading the Bible as Scripture. It was edited by Joel Green and David Watson. And uh, there's really great content there, really um, wonderful material. Um, but I, I was struck as I read through um, those essays, uh, the doctrine of inerrancy 
uh, came up uh, repeatedly. And I, I got the sense that uh, many of the contributors were uh, rather embarrassed uh, by the fact that John Wesley embraced the doctrine of inerrancy. And they uh, responded to that in different ways. Um, some, uh, some of the contributors argued that, well, yes, he was a inerrantist, but he wasn't an inerrantist in the modern sense. Um, and then they you know, drew a, a caricature of the modern inerrantist, uh, you know, a straw man, and said, you know, well, Wesley didn't believe that. Um, and then others, which I think is the more, uh, frankly, the more uh, intellectually uh, honest or uh, the, the more accurate way, um, uh, though I disagree with their conclusion, but others acknowledge that, yes, indeed, John Wesley was an inerrantist. Yes, indeed, he would agree with modern inerrantists, but they argued we shouldn't follow um, John Wesley in that. Um, and one of the, uh, so I'll talk first of all about why um, John West, why we can be confident that John Wesley was an inerrantist. Uh, he, he, he has a, a couple of um, statements that he makes where he is uh, very clear. Uh, one in particular, uh, he is responding to uh, a, a bishop who uh, makes an argument that sounds very similar or offers a doctrine of scripture that sounds very similar to the doctrine of scripture articulated by many contemporary Wesleyans. Um, the, uh, this bishop argued that scripture was infallible uh, as a guide of uh, faith. Um, so, you know, scripture uh, was intended to, you know, guide us in, in the way of salvation, and it was infallible uh, as as a guide in that for that purpose. But um, it was, uh, you know, it, 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 it might contain trifling errors in circumstances of small importance. That's a, that's a quote there, trifling errors in circumstances of small importance. It just uh, didn't contain any considerable error, that is, any major or consequential error. And uh, John Wesley's response to this was, no, will not the allowing that there is any error in Scripture shape the authority of the whole? Um, so he, he argued, uh, you know, in response to that view of scripture that no we uh, we should not affirm that there is any error in scripture at all that affirming that allowing that there's any error shakes the authority of the whole uh, he makes a very similar statement elsewhere where he says if there be one falsehood in the bible there may be a thousand neither can it proceed from the god of truth so i think it's very clear that john wesley would reject um, the view of scripture that's articulated by many contemporary wesleyans and that he would em certainly embrace the um, uh, doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, I, I think uh, he would embrace the doctrine as it's articulated in a statement such as the Chicago Statement. Um, so, uh, so again, I, I don't think that um, there, uh, the, the one, one approach that some uh, took in this book uh, of essays on Wesley and the Bible was to deny that Wesley was actually an inerrantist. And again, as I, as I just argued, I don't think that's really a viable option. Another alternative that that uh, some of the other, you know, some other contributors uh, took was to say, okay, yes, Wesley was an inerrantist, but we shouldn't follow Wesley in his view on scripture. We should depart from his, his view um, of inerrancy. And uh, at least one of the arguments given there was that uh, John Wesley arrived at this view of inerrancy because of the influence of Enlightenment rationalism, and that uh, you know the, it, it was uh, because of 
uh, the you know views that were present at that time and the skepticism that was present at that time that he adopted this view of scripture that focused on factual accuracy and um, you know we need to recognize that that was a mistake he made um, and we shouldn't follow him in that view. I mean, in response to that, I would just point out that uh, the things that John Wesley said, those two quotes that I read from him, um, uh, were uh, very similar things were said by St. Augustine um, long, long before the 18th century. Um, so so St. Augustine uh, very clearly articulates a doctrine of inerrancy. He says that there uh, can be no error in the, in the scriptures. Uh, he says that if he sees anything that seems to be an error, then he knows that one of three things has happened. Either the translator has not translated the text correctly, or that there's some error in the manuscript, the, the copyist who's produced the manuscript has, has made some error, or that he himself has not understood, um, that he's misinterpreted it. Um, but uh, so, you know, he gives those three important caveats, but he, he maintains that the scriptures um, in, in their, uh, you know, in the original autographs, uh, when correctly interpreted, are without error. Um, and then he also makes a st the statements very similar to what Wesley made. So again, Wesley's emphasis on inerrancy was uh, tied to the authority of scripture. He said, that, look, if we um, allow that there, there's an, any error in scripture, then the authority of the whole is shaken. It can't have, we can't say that it's from the God of truth. Um, and that is very similar to what um, St. Augustine said. Um, he he uh, said that, um, I'll find the exact quote here. Uh, he says, it seems to me that the most disastrous consequences must follow upon our believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. Um, he says, goes on to say, the authority of the divine scriptures becomes unsettled so that everyone may believe what he wishes and reject what he does not wish. If this be at once admitted, that the men by whom these things have been delivered unto us could in their writing state some things which were not true. Uh, it's interesting to note that the context in which uh, Augustine said this, um, he was talking to Jerome, and the issue that he was talking to Jerome about was a passage in Galatians that was embarrassing for the early church. And this is the passage where uh, Paul says that he confronted Peter, um, that Peter wasn't, uh, uh, that he had, he had compromised the truth of the gospel. And so Paul gets in his face and corrects him. And for the early church, this was embarrassing that, that um, Paul and Peter would be disagreeing uh, and, and, and that there would be this um, conflict. And so, um, Jerome uh, suggested that perhaps um, what what we have happening here was that um, that that Peter didn't actually disagree with Paul, um, that he had just um, for the for the sake of not offending the weak conscience of um, the Jewish Christians there had had made some changes in his behavior, but he actually was fully in agreement with Paul and that Paul knew that he was in agreement with him and that he just went through this act of rebuking him for the purpose of um, uh, communicating the correct message to the Galatians. Notice that that's a very, uh, that's a very mild error. It's not like Jerome was saying the scriptures are teaching, um, you know, the, the scriptures are, you know, teaching some doctrine that needs to be rejected or, you know, there's, there's, there's some egregious error that's been made. No, it's, it's just uh, his, he was saying, well, maybe Paul is um, kind of a, a, a 
not being a hundred percent transparent and and authentic in what he's saying. Maybe he's being a little bit deceptive in how he is um, approaching this issue, and and it is that issue that elicited such strong response from Augusta. And he said, "No, we can't say that. We, you know, we can't allow that. There's any sort of error or false statement in scripture that would shake the authority of of scripture." And he he presents this not as some new idea, like. You know, I've been thinking about the doctrine of scripture, and I think we, we need to affirm, uh, you know, the, the truth of everything in scripture. No, he presents this as something that uh, Jerome would agree with him on. Like, like surely, Jerome, you'd agree that, you know, there, there is no error in the canonical books. And um, we, we learned, by the way, from later letters that Jerome uh, changed his position on this, and he was evidently um, conv convinced by Augustine's argument. So all that to say. Uh, I think that uh, we cannot escape, as Wesleyans, we cannot escape the fact that John Wesley affirmed the doctrine of inerrancy, nor can we escape the fact that in affirming the doctrine of inerrancy, uh, John Wesley was affirming the traditional view of scripture that has been articulated um, for centuries in the church. Well, thank you for laying that out. And those quotes are very helpful to hear from Augustine and uh, Wesley, both. Um, it really helps to put into context what they mean and uh, what they really thought about uh, scripture. So thank you. Um, now, in that same series of blog posts, um, uh, responding to David Watson, you hold up uh, Dr. Mike Lycona. Um, so for those who don't know, uh, he's a professor at uh, Houston Baptist University. Um, and he, uh, you hold him up as, a, as an example of an inerrantist. Now, some people would characterize him as a limited inerrantist. Others would say he is an inerrantist, um, and it, that's a, dis, uh, a debate. Um, but uh, what do you make of his interpretation of Matthew 27, 52 through 53? And it might be helpful for listeners to open their Bibles and to read that passage as it's talking about the resurrection of the saints. But um, it is for... I can give a little bit of background to this uh, without going into too much detail, but uh, Mike Lycona was, uh, had this interpretation of Matthew 27, 52 through 53. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong here at all, Dr. Vosser, but um, he was, uh, gave a, a description um, that said that it was under Greco-Roman biography and, um, and we can break down what that means. Um, but it, uh, it basically said the resurrection of the saints was more of a um, a literary or a um, uh, a more metaphorical uh, function rather than a historical fact. Um, and this got him, him into some hot water uh, with a few evangelical scholars and that eventually had him lose his job at multiple institutions. Um, so with all that being said, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on that interpretation and how it lines up with inerrancy. Okay. Well, great question. Um, so let me say, first of all, that um, you're, you're right that I do characterize Mike Lacona as an inerrantist. Um, and um, that is because he affirms uh, that the scriptures are inerrant. Uh, he is a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. And this, uh, all members have to sign this, uh, the, the doctrinal basis of the society, which is a, a simple statement that the scriptures are inerrant in the original autographs. 
Um, so he does affirm that. Now, um, you're quite right that his understanding of inerrancy uh, has uh, been controversial. Um, and as you know, he he gave a uh, a talk um, in this this year, this uh, last November, th this November, um, at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, um, where he uh, really critiqued uh, heavily critiqued the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. His um, his his talk was entitled "The Chicago Statement Needs a Facelift." Um, but uh, and I don't want to represent him. Um, I, I, I don't have his his papers not available, um, so I, I don't have the exact wording. But um, I believe in his talk, he said something to the effect of, um, you know, the Chicago statement seems to have an incorrect view of inspiration and maybe beyond saving. This is something to that effect. So it was a very strong critique of the Chicago statement. Um, so there is certainly, you know, d disagreement uh, among the uh, inerrantist camp on, on how we should understand this doctrine. And uh, Mike Lacona would certainly represent um, one to one end of that spectrum. Um, now, as, as far as the specific issue here, Matthew 27, um, this is a difficult passage. I, I think everyone would acknowledge that this is a difficult passage. Um, if, if you don't recall, this is where... Um, you know, at, at when Jesus dies on the cross, the, the veil of the temple is torn. And we're told in Matthew that uh, apparently Old Testament saints, um, their, their graves are, are open, they're raised. And after Jesus rose from the dead, um, they came out into the city. And there, there are a number of, of pro, you know, difficulties with this passage. Um, and, uh, you know, theologically, we, we wonder what sort of resurrection is this? It, um, surely is not the final resurrection. Um, and th th then does it mean that these saints went back into their tombs and died again? Um, there's also just the way that it's said, it, it seems like they are raised when Jesus dies, but they, they don't leave their tombs until Jesus is resurrected. Um, it, so it's a little difficult to understand what exactly is, is um, being described there. Um, and then, of course, this is an event that's not mentioned anywhere else um, in the New Testament. Um, and so it, it is definitely a puzzling event, uh, a puzzling passage for scholars. And um, yes, Mike, Mike Lacona doesn't think that this is uh, sh should be understood as, as a literal event. Um, if I understand him correctly, he, he thinks that this is um, the use of apocalyptic imagery um, uh, to emphasize the significance of the events that are being described. Um, so uh, it is, it is quite right that, that this has caused a lot of controversy. A lot of people see this as incompatible with, um, the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, I think, uh, we need to distinguish two, uh, different, um, issues. And, um, it, in order to do that, I'm going to shift from Matthew for a moment and talk about another very controversial passage. Um, uh, so let's think for a moment about uh, Romans 1, where Paul uh, condemns homosexuality. Okay, obviously today this is a very controversial text, um, you know, um, very much at odds with the uh, views of, of our modern society. And so um, what Christian, some Christians approach it this way. They say, okay, well, in Romans 1, Paul condemns homosexual acts as sinful. Um, but Paul was wrong. Paul was mistaken on this. Um, and, uh, you know, homosexuality is, homosexual acts are not a sin. 
Okay, well, that is clearly incompatible with the inerrancy, right? Um, you know, that's a denial that what the scriptures teach is true. Uh, it's a claim that the scriptures are erroneous um, in what they say about homosexuality. Um, but there's another approach that uh, Christians, uh, some Christians take, and that is to say, well, in this passage, Paul isn't really talking about um, homosexuality per se. He's talking about pedestry. He's just talking about um, sex between uh, men and boys. That's all he's talking about. And so this passage doesn't um, then uh, mean that homosexuality is wrong. Okay, well, I completely disagree with that view, um, but I can't refute it simply by citing the doctrine of inerrancy, right? Because the, the person isn't claiming that the scriptures are teaching something that's untrue. They're, they're just interpreting the scriptures uh, in a particular way, um, but at the they, you know, they think they're they're claiming that the scriptures don't actually teach that homosexuality is a sin. Okay, so to refute that, I can't simply cite the doctrine of inerrancy, right? I have to do the hard work of interpretation, and I have to go to the text and show them that no, you know, given what what the words are used in this text and what we know of the historical background, that is just not a plausible interpretation, right? So I, I would say those people are mistaken, um, but they're not. Their view isn't necessarily contradictory. Uh, they're not contradicting inerrancy like the other group is, right? Who say, you know, yes, Paul um, said homosexual acts are sinful, but Paul is just wrong. Okay, so that just, I want to keep that distinction in mind. We can, we can, you know, someone can have an interpretation of scripture that is very inaccurate and very wrong and yet not be denying the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, so um, returning now to Matthew 27 with, with that distinction in mind, um, if someone says, um, Matthew is engaging in deception. Um, Matthew is presenting a, um, uh, event as historical, um, when he knows it's not historical, um, to deceive his readers into thinking this marvelous thing happened, then obviously that is contradictory to, um, I, I would say obviously contradictory to the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, if I understand Mike Lacona correctly, he's not arguing that. He's arguing that Matthew is not presenting this as historical, that Matthew is drawing on apocalyptic imagery and his readers would recognize that this is what he was doing so that they would they would recognize this as not historical. Um, if that is indeed what, and if, I, if I'm understanding Mike Lacona correctly, and if that's what he's saying, then I suppose what I would say is I, I don't think that his view um, is... Uh, if that is and again, if that's indeed his view that the author is not intending to present this as a historical event, um, but that uh, the author is um, using language that his audience would recognize as being, uh, to, you know, uh, symbolic, um, then uh, I, I would say he's not violating inerrancy. His view is compatible with inerrancy. However, uh, I, I would say I'm still very skeptical that that is a correct interpretation of the passage. Um, it's it's awfully hard to read that passage and um, not think that it's being presented as a historical event. Uh, so um, I, I would um, I, I would question his interpretation, um, but if I understand his interpretation correctly, I I I, I think it's um, and and of course he he thinks this as well. Again, as as I have said, he does affirm inerrancy, so he maintains that his view of this passage is um, compatible with inerrancy. And um, if, again, if I've understood him correctly, then I, I would agree with that, even though I would um, be skeptical of his interpretation.
Okay, that's that's helpful. Um, I would say, as a response, as a layperson uh, with no theological training, and uh, given that I'm not a biblical scholar in any any sense of the word, um, it's difficult for me as the reader to jump from uh, Greco-Roman biography and then Matthew, and then also go to the resurrection and not interpret that as like, um. That I'd interpret that as historical, if that makes sense. And I may be misunderstanding Mike Lycona here, so I, I want to yeah. apologize if I am misrepresenting him at all. No, I, I mean, I certainly Greco-Roman biography is a genre that deals in history and real events, and, and my, Mike Lycona would acknowledge that. Um, and uh, I should note here that his view that the Gospels are Greco-Roman biographies is um, the majority view of scholars, uh, certainly uh, something that's widely accepted by conservative scholars. So his um, his particular interpretation of uh, Matthew 27, 52 to 53 is, is that there is an, another genre at play here that uh, if I'm, again, if I'm understanding him correctly, but that, um, that it, uh, he's not claiming that Greco-Roman biographies just dealt in in fictional events or something like that. Uh, Greco-Roman biographies certainly uh, describe real events, real people. Um, but he, uh, again, his view seems to be that in this particular passage, uh, there is some uh, apocalyptic imagery that is being used uh, that's not intended to be in interpreted literally. Um, now, you know, uh, the, the question is, uh, it, it, is that really... Um, what's going on here is would, would, a, would a first century reader who was familiar with the you know genres of the day and the language that was used in the day, would they really interpret this as um, not a claim of a historical event? I'm, not, I'm skeptical on that point. Okay, thank you. Uh, we could talk about this for quite a while, but uh, I appreciate you at least breaking it down and uh, getting the conversation started. I think uh, people should look into this themselves if they want to read. The resurrection of G uh, Christ, I think it's called. I I might not be the title. Um, oh uh, yes, uh, it's the it's the resurrection of Jesus: a new historiographical approach. Yes, that's, that's uh, right. Big book um, by Michael Lacona where he um, he makes a case for the resurrection. Um, and this this discussion of Matthew twenty seven is just a very small part of that. Yes, yeah. Um, I would encourage listeners to to delve into that book if they feel confident. Um, I want to jump to, uh, you mentioned earlier about his talk that he gave, um, about the Chicago statement needing a facelift, uh, in your response to him, you say that the inerrancy cannot extend beyond the original autographs. Now for lay people that may not understand what that means, could you break down why that is the case and what the original autographs are? Yeah. So the original autographs just mean the original um, documents of the New Testament. So take, for example, Romans. Paul writes a letter and he sends it to the church in Rome. That letter, the you know the, the um, uh, actual physical letter that Paul sent to the church in Rome, that is the autograph. And we do not have that, right? That has not survived. All we have are copies. Um, and so uh, scribes, as they copied the New Testament, they uh, you know, frequently made errors and um, sometimes even change the text intentionally. 
Um, and so we need, you know, we, we acknowledge that there, there's the possibility of errors in our manuscripts. This is, so this is why the Chicago statement is very clear that the claims of inerrancy are um, strictly speaking limited to the autographs. And one thing that I point out in my interaction with Mike Lacona is that again, this is not something new. This is not something that modern fundamentalists have come up with. Um, the, if you recall the passage that I cited from Augustine, that was one of the caveats that he put on the doctrine of inerrancy, that this is about the original um, autographs because he acknowledges it's possible that the scribe has made a mistake, right? So that's one of the three caveats that he gave. If he encounters something in scripture that seems to be erroneous, he knows that either the translator got it wrong, the scribe who copied the, the man, manuscript got it wrong, or he got it wrong in his interpretation, right? Um, so now, Mike, um, and again, I don't, I, I, all I have is, is uh, the, the memory of, of his talk that he gave. I don't have the paper in front of me. Um, it's from a forthcoming book and his, his publisher is not allowing him to distribute that right now. But um, he, he wants to have a a more open view of inerrancy, a, a, a looser view of inerrancy. And one of the advantages of that, uh, he, he believes, is that then um, we, you know, as it is now in the Chicago statement, all we can say are that the autographs are inerrant. But he wants to say on, on his view of inerrancy, he can tell you that the, the Bible that you hold in your hand is inerrant. Um, and um, I, in my interaction with him, and I, I think I... Um, uh, maybe got him to nuance his, his view a little bit, but I, I pointed out how, um, just as, as an example, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 um, where there's a debate on how to translate it, and the two translations are polar opposite in meaning. Um, so the, the, it's uh, instructions to slaves, and um, the, the question is, do, is Paul telling the slaves, um, if you have the opportunity to be free, you shouldn't use it, you should remain a slave? That's one translation. Another translation is that if you have the opportunity to be free, you should use it and you should take advantage of that opportunity. Um, uh, this translation has been disputed. And so some translations say one thing, some translations say the other. And I just pointed out um, to Dr. Lacona that, you know, obviously we can't say that both are inerrant because they're teaching opposite things. And he agreed with that. So he, he added, you know, you'd have to add the caveat that the translation was correct. And by the way, let me just point out for readers who might be distressed by the, you know, talking of, of um, you know, slavery is another very sensitive, difficult issue. I just want to point out that um, scholars are now um, uh, largely agreed that uh, the correct translation is if you are able to be free, you should be take that advantage, you should use that freedom, um, and that the other translation, if you're available to be free, you should, you should not be free and remain a slave, that that is an incorrect translation. Um, there was some helpful uh, work that was done on the uh, uh, meaning of this construction, this particular Greek construction, um, looking at the excellent literature. Won't go into all that, <laughs> beside the point. Just wanted to, since we mentioned that, just wanted to, to say that that uh, scholars do think they know the right tra uh, translation now. Um, but so anyway, uh, he did add the caveat that, yeah, the translation has to be correct. And I, I would say you, you can't escape that uh, similar caveat with the texts that you're using, the manuscripts um, that you have. So I, I pointed out um, there's uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, there's a passage where Paul says that women aren't supposed to speak in church. And um, there's a re real question whether that was originally in 1 Corinthians 14. 
Um, and, you know, there's a strong case to be made that it was, but there's also a strong case to be made that it wasn't and that it was a, a later edition and that it actually contradicts what Paul's view was on it. So, um, you know, I, I again, I pointed out that, look, unless we're going to say this debate has been settled, um, then we can't say that our manuscripts are inerrant. We have to acknowledge that there's a possibility um, that that the scribes have introduced uh, an error there. Um, so anyway, all, all that to say, uh, I, I do think that the Chicago statement is correct uh, to restrict inerrancy to the autographs. I think that uh, St. Augustine was correct to uh, restrict the claim of inerrancy to the autographs. Um, I, I think we have to acknowledge that it's possible that scribes and translators introduced errors. Well, thank you for that description. It's really helpful. Um, I really appreciate your conversation with Mike, uh, and uh, I will be posting uh, that in the show notes uh, for listeners who are interested in reading uh, the exchange that uh, Dr. Vosser has with Dr. Lacona, um, and as well as the other blog posts that he has uh, with Dr. Uh, uh, responding to Dr. Watson and uh, talking to um, uh, about in Wesley's view of inerrancy. So, some great resources there for listeners to to re read up on. Now, uh, one of the common critiques of inerrancy is that it doesn't account for differences in the Gospels. Now, this is a big, big topic. Uh, books have been written on this, so we don't have the time to delve into this, but I wanted to at least dip our toes in this question. But why are the, um, there... Uh, what, how can we explain the differences in the Gospels? Um, maybe just yeah, we could take one one difference in particular. Okay, yeah, I'll just give one example. Um, in uh, the story of um, Jairus's daughter, um, in one account, uh, Jairus's daughter is still alive when Jairus comes to Jesus, and uh, it is only after he heals the woman with the flow of blood that um, he receives word that his daughter has died. Um, in another account. Uh, Jairus's daughter is dead before when he comes to meet Jesus. He he asks Jesus. He tell he tells Jesus when he first encounters him before the healing of the one with the flow of blood that his daughter's dead. Now um, I, I give that as an example because that's I think a, a clear example where we have a difference in the gospel that can't be harmonized. Um, some of the differences in the gospels you can just say well you know maybe it's two different events or maybe you know maybe Jesus said one thing on one occasion said one thing on another occasion. Um, but here we have I think clearly the same event described in different ways. Um, and so the question is, then, is this an error? And the Chicago statement um, has uh, a, a, a very good um, discussion of uh, differences in the Gospels. And um, they, they make the point, I, I'm, I don't have the exact words in front of me here, but uh, something to the effect of if, um, if a, a particular level of precision is not being aimed at, it's no error not to have achieved it. Um, and so um, if the if the Gospels are not, if, so take, for example, quotation, um, if the Gospels are not intending to quote Jesus verbatim in a particular instance, it's no error that they don't quote him verbatim, right? And so um, there's a recognition that we have to be uh, sensitive to, um, you know, the uh, ancient conventions um, that um, govern uh, Greco-Roman biography. And this has been really... Uh, this idea has been developed with great rigor and sophistication by 
uh, two scholars who are both members of the Evangelical Theological Society, both inerrantists. One is Michael Lacona, who we've been talking about. He did um, a, a great uh, study called Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? And I know we're getting running short on time here, but basically he looks at the biographies of Plutarch and he uh, Plutarch wrote biographies of famous men. Many of these men lived at the same time and participated in the same event. So he said, okay, well, let's look at how Plutarch, the same author, describes the same event in different biographies. And what he finds is that um, you see the same sort of differences uh, in, within one author, within Plutarch, um, that you find when you compare the Gospels. And he argues that uh, many of the differences that we see in the Gospels um, can be explained as um, the use of accepted um, conventions, uh, literary conventions um, that, that were used uh, in the writing of biography in, in ancient history, um, things like um, you know compressing a narrative, um, rearranging events in the narrative, uh, putting focus on one particular character in the narrative, and uh, you know we could obviously go into this in a lot more detail. But um, uh, he he argues that that what we see here in these differences, uh, the differences in the Gospels, um, are uh, just all, all they mean is that the writer, the the authors of the Gospels are following the literary conventions of their day. Um, and I, so I mentioned two scholars. One, one is Michael Cohn. Another is Craig Keener, who actually recently served as the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. Um, so certainly an inerrantist. Um, and he has done, uh, uh, he's really um, uh, done a, a lot of work in that same area as well. Um, and he's, he points out that the differences or the uh, things that Michael Cohn finds in Plutarch um, are found in more widely in the Greco-Roman literature. So yeah, he has a book, Christobiography. Yes, deals with that issue. I was just about to to say that the title, the, the book. So thank you. Um, yeah, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, you did your doctoral work under Dr. Keener as well, correct? Um, yeah. So Dr. Ben Witherington was my um, dissertation supervisor, but I had a lot of classes with Dr. Keener, and he was also on my dissertation committee. Um, so I I I know him quite well. He's he's a wonderful scholar, a wonderful Christian man. Really had a great influence on me. Awesome. Thank you. Um, um, I, I know we're getting near the end of our time, Clay, but I I, I know you'd had a, a question on um, Genesis. I know that's a real controversial issue that interests a lot of people. So I didn't know if you wanted to maybe jump ahead uh, to that one or if if uh, if we if we still have time to tackle it. Yeah, let's let's do that right now. Um, I'm just covering all the um, controversial passages with you. So thank you for bearing with me. Um, I appreciate, I know your, uh, focus is a new Testament, but, um, I recently heard you on a panel with, uh, Dr. Ayers, um, uh, Dr. Annie Miller, the third, um, and Dr. Blakemore, um, on the more to the story podcast. And I'll link to that podcast in the show notes, um, where you discuss inerrancy. And, um, one of the things you bring up is that J.I. Packer in a, uh, which you also cite in a blog post when, in your response to David Watson, um, that he said the genre of Genesis 1 is prose poem. Um, however, he was also on the Chicago Statement on Hermeneutics, which says that Genesis 1 through 11 is historical, and Packer was there at the summit. And I'm not entirely sure if he signed it. I believe he did, but I'd have to go back and check that. Um, what can we make of Packer's statement in light of that? Okay. Well, great question. Um, so uh, on that, the post that I have um, in responding to Dr. Watson, where I cite J.I. Packer, 
Um, I have a link to an audio recording of a talk that he gave on evolution. And he's very clear there. Um, he not only does he describe Genesis 1 as a prose poem, but he says that he doesn't think there's, there's anything in the early chapters of Genesis that contradict the evolutionary hypothesis. Now, notice that's not, not just the great, the evolutionary hypothesis doesn't involve just the great age of the earth, that, you know, the earth is millions of years old, but that the, the idea of common descent, that humans descended from, um, you know, lower life forms. Um, and he, you know, he says in that talk that he doesn't think there's anything in um, in Genesis that contradicts that. Now, he also says that he he himself is very skeptical of uh, the evolutionary hypothesis, and he he offers um, some uh, scientific concerns. If if you're familiar with the intelligent design movement, um, he you know the, so the concerns he expresses are very much uh, in, in accord with uh, concerns that have been expressed by proponents of intelligent design. Um, so he doesn't. He's not an evolutionist. He doesn't, um, you know, fully accept the at least fully accept the evolutionary theory. But um, he does state in that talk that he he doesn't think it is in conflict with with Genesis. Um, okay. So the question is, um, you know, how how does that align with the Chicago statement on hermeneutics? Um, where, and uh, you, you say you don't know if he signed it. Not only did he sign it, um, but he also wrote the exposition for it. Um, so uh, just like the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, there is uh, a rather lengthy exposition after the Affirmations and Denials, and um, it is authored by uh, J.I. Packer. Um, and so I, I, I would point out, you, you, you mentioned here that um, the uh, Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics, which for, if your readers aren't aware of this, this is a statement um, different from the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. It's um, something like a supplemental statement that was made uh, at a later date. Um, but uh, you mentioned that it, it says that Genesis is historical, but it, um, I, I think you're, you're probably referring to Article 22. Um, and the actual word that's used there is uh, it says, we affirm that Genesis 1 through 11 is factual, as is the rest of the book. Okay, now, uh, to say that Genesis is factual means that the assertions that Genesis makes are true. And um, so I, I think that certainly um, J.I. Packer would affirm that. Um, and I, I don't think he would see that as being uh, in contradiction with his claim that the genre of Genesis 1 is a prose poem. Poem. Um, uh, the the you know the, uh, uh, the the assertion that Genesis is factual again means that that um, claims that are made in Genesis are true, right? They're not false. Um, but we have to ask what what is Genesis actually claiming? And in order to answer that question, you have to think about genre, and um, you have to ask is um, you know, is Genesis intended to be read in a strictly literal uh, fashion? And uh, that's a question, by the way, that um, to answer that question, I don't think you should start with science and try to, you know, force science on the text. I think you should start with the text and, and look at the text and um, um, attempt to determine from the text uh, what, what the um, best interpretation is. Uh, so, yes, all that to say, I, I, I don't think that... Uh, or, you know, J.R. Packer clearly didn't have a problem with uh, claiming that Genesis is factual. Um, and I, I think it's interesting they use the word factual. They didn't use the word historical because um, I, I don't think they're intending there to make a genre claim um, that, uh, that Genesis 1 through 11 is 
uh, of the same genre as the rest of Genesis, but that it is factual like the rest of Genesis and that everything that it teaches is true. Everything that it asserts is true. So I would I would consider that to be um, you know essential to inerrancy, uh, the the view that everything the Bible teaches is true. But again, we have to wrestle with that difficult question of what what is the Bible actually teaching? And um, an important component of answering that question is thinking about genre. And uh, I just uh, a last note on this in the um, in the exposition of this statement um, under um, under a, a heading called um, well, I, I back up a bit um, under a heading. And again, this was written by J.I. Packer, um, but uh, under the heading, the Holy Spirit or sorry, uh, the heading formal rules of biblical interpretation. Uh, he, he talks about genre and the importance of genre. Um, and then later in a under the heading, the biblical statements and natural science, um, he talks about um, uh, how uh, uh Scripture often describes natural processes figuratively and poetically, um, not analytically and prosaically as modern science seeks to do. Um, so, he, you know, there's an acknowledgement there that um, we need to be careful when we're attempting to determine what exactly the scriptures are claiming and asserting about um, the, the natural world, the natural sciences. Well, thank you for that distinction. I actually didn't know um, that it didn't say historical; that it used factual instead, which is helpful to know. Um, and I would encourage listeners to go and read um, that exposition, and uh, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, Doctor Vosser, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. We've covered such uh, a wide variety of things today, um, and uh, you have been patient through it all. So I thank you, sir, for just being able to uh, uh, answer my questions and uh, being uh, thoughtful and uh, kind in your responses. Well, thank you, Clay. It's really been a pleasure. And I mean, wow, there's so much we could talk about. I feel like we could we could keep going for another hour, but I really appreciate you having me on your podcast. And uh, I, I appreciate your uh, concern to think carefully about this important doctrines. So um, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. And to my listeners, uh, one last note, uh, just remember that uh, this is a doctrine that uh, really takes time and effort to uh, to read through and to uh, consider. Um, there are many interpretations that uh, are needed to, to sift through, and so just be patient with yourselves as you work this out yourself. Re read the text uh, of Scripture um, first and foremost and really wrestle with it. Uh, don't uh, look at other interpretations and be confused by that or to allow those interpretations to overrule what the text says. Um, really wrestle with the text. I, I think you would uh, have that same advice to Dr. Vosser, I believe. Absolutely. That's a good word, Clay. Well, thank you again. And to my listeners, go and read the word. Amen. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Murray Vosser, for coming on the show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. Until next time, go and read the word. Mm -hmm.